Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. listeners and welcome to Behind the Knife's Pediatric Surgery Case Presentation Podcast. Today we will discuss the workup and management of three neonatal general surgery cases. This is Amanda Jensen from Riley Children's in Indianapolis. I am the current Pediatric Surgery Senior Fellow. Today I have with me Dr. Brian Gray. Hey guys, I'm Brian Gray. I'm the Pediatric Surgery Fellowship Program Director at Riley Hospital for Children. We want to make sure that you have an excellent toolbox to work up these patients in the emergency department, get them ready for the OR, and get them safely home. I'm Anisha Badia, who is one of the general surgery residents at Indiana University. I'm Anisha. I'm one of the PGY3s at IU. Our goal today is to get you, behind the knife listeners, ready to shine on your PEDS surge rotation. We'll go through three case scenarios and make sure we emphasize the whys, hows of what we do to make sure our patients get to the OR and home as safely as possible. Okay, let's start it out with a case. You were consulted by the ED for a one-week-old infant who has persistent vomiting and has not taken a full feed since birth. Amanda, what are you going to do now? So I'd start by performing a focused history and physical, asking about the duration, frequency, and color of the emesis. I'd also gather more information about the baby's birth history and ask if she has gained weight since leaving the hospital. I'd see if she required any additional stays in the hospital or has undergone an operation previously. Okay. The child was born at 37 weeks with no past medical surgical history. She's had multiple episodes of green emesis today and has not been able to tolerate anything by mouth since early this morning. She has had no wet diapers today and her last dirty diaper was yesterday. She is tachycardic with flat fontanelles. Her abdomen is soft with no masses or hernias. So in this scenario, I'm worried about the potential of a malrotation with volvulus, pyloric stenosis, small bowel obstruction, or intussusception. At this point, I place an IV and give the baby a 20 ml per kilo bolus of normal saline and send blood for a CBC and a CMP. I'd also like to obtain an abdominal x-ray. Okay, so let's think about your workup. Your CBC is normal. The CMP demonstrates chloride of 100, potassium of 3.4, a bicarb of 29. KUB shows a dilated stomach and small bowel with minimal distal bowel gas. So at this point, I'd make sure to, that the child was on maintenance IV fluids and obtain an urgent upper GI to roll out malrotation. Manisha, let's say the radiologist can't get him to come in to perform the upper GI study. How would you perform an upper GI? looking at Riley that the pediatric radiologists are in-house basically at all times. But for this one week old, I place an OG tube and dose some dilute barium. Once I was satisfied with the amount of contrast in the stomach, I placed the patient in the right lateral decubitus to see the retroperitoneal extent of the duodenum. Then, under continuous fluoroscopy, I move the child back from a lateral to supine position to see the contrast pass through the duodenum and identify the duodenal-jejunal junction. Then I turn to see the patient in the lateral view to assess the duodenal-jejunal junction. Okay, that's a nice description. Are there any other imaging studies to diagnose malrotation with volvulus? We could use ultrasound. Just like upper GIs performed by those who irregularly complete them on neonates, the ultrasound is user-dependent. In the case of malrotation, we'd look at the vessels. The SMB with the anterior or to the left of the SMA aorta axis, an intraperitoneal course of D3 anterior to the SMA, only small bowel in the right lower quadrant, 
abnormal sequel position and or possibly a hypoplastic pancreatic uncinant process. Specifically for the volvulus, the ultrasound can identify a clockwise swirl of the SMV. Its branches and bowel around the SMA. Two benefits of the ultrasound is that the exam can be done in the emergency department or the NICU, and it can also be used to assess other things on our differential. But if this ultrasound was non-diagnostic and I was incredibly suspicious for malrotation, I'd still try to get an upper GI emergently. Great. I think that's the really important part of this case is number one, to diagnose that you have some kind of obstruction and, you know, from your x-ray, the obstruction looks like it's fairly proximal because there's not a lot of distal gas. But when they're vomiting, you see that there is green contents, so bilious contents. So you know that your obstruction is likely distal to the sphincter remodi and uh, where the bile comes into the intestines. So that gives you a great idea that this patient might have malrotation with volvulus. Let's say we're able to get an upper GI study and it showed that the duodenal jejunction, duodenal jejunal junction is not left under a tubal body pedicle with abrupt cutoff of contrast. So the important part here we see is that we don't see a full C loop of the duodenum and we don't see it going over to the left side of the vertebral bodies. And so we know that something is amiss. So Amanda, tell us what you do. So in that scenario, this would be diagnostic for malrotation with volvulus. At this point in time, I would take the child emergently to the operating room for an exploratory laparotomy. After induction of anesthesia and giving preoperative antibiotics, I'd perform a right upper quadrant transverse laparotomy. I would first inspect the bowel and detorse it by turning it uh, counterclockwise. And the way that I remember this is turning back the hands of time. Um, and then I would focus on identifying and releasing the lads bands, and I would ensure that the colon is fully mobilized and that the duodenum is straightened out. Another really important part of a lads procedure is widening the mesentery. You want this to be as wide as possible and open up the uh, peritoneum along the mesentery very carefully, being mindful of those mesenteric vessels. And then I would, uh, at the completion of this, I would then uh perform an appendectomy, and then I would place all of the small bowel back into the right side of the abdomen, making sure that the duodenum laid against the right colic gutter, and then place the colon on the left. Um, and usually the cecum uh, lays um, anterior into the left lower abdomen. And then lastly, I'd still continue to make sure that the bowel appeared pink at the end of the procedure. Okay. That sounds like a nice operation. Uh, can you tell me why you're going to take that appendix out? I think that's an important point for people to think about. Yeah. So the appendix normally is in the right lower quadrant. And in patients with malrotation, we're putting all the small ball on the right and the entire colon on the left. And so if we did not remove the appendix, it would normally be approximately in the left lower abdomen. I say possibly or most likely because depending on the amount of adhesions that a patient develops will kind of determine where that stays the majority of the time. But because it's not in a normal location, we do end up removing it. Great. Thanks for that clarification. So after completing most of the procedure, it does not appear to pink up, meaning the bowel, but it is not frankly necrotic. So it's somewhere in between. What would you do next? So at this point in time, I would continue to reevaluate the bowel and Sometimes it's helpful to use a Woods lamp or even looking at a Doppler signal. Additionally, you could use ICG to evaluate the bowel. If there were areas that were 
sprinkling a chronic, I would resect them. If there was areas that were questionable and I felt like I couldn't determine at that point in time whether or not I should resect or leave it in, I would essentially do a temporary closure and plan to bring them back to the operating room in 24 hours to reevaluate that bowel. At that point in time, decide whether or not that bowel was salvageable. Okay. So let's say that when you were doing your operation, the bowel pinked up pretty nicely after you derotated it and then did your uh, your procedure. So what does that child's postoperative course look like typically? So postoperatively, I would start them on a clear liquid diet and advance as tolerated, uh, starting enteral nutrition early. If there was some bowel compromise at the initial operation, I might wait a period of time for them to have return of bowel function. And essentially, wait until they're tolerating a regular diet and their um, bowels are functioning normally before discharge home. Okay, great. So let's say that this patient does seem to do pretty well. What are some of the other ways a patient with malrotation could present? In general, most patients with symptomatic malrotation present within the first month of life. And for me, I was taught that bilious emesis at anyone less than one year of age should raise concern for malrotation. These lab bands or congenital adhesions can cause extrinsic duodenal obstruction, which leads to the bilious emesis. These patients may not always have pain if they don't have the associated midgut volvulus. Malrotation can also be incidentally diagnosed on imaging for these patients obtained for another purpose. That's a great point, Manisha. So I think you really have to have a high suspicion for malrotation if you see a patient with green vomiting. Uh, or even a baby who really has just not been tolerating feeding very well for different reasons. So getting an upper GI study can be very useful uh, with these patients. Okay, so let's move on to the next case. You have a six-week-old infant who presents to your emergency department for several episodes of projectile vomiting. The mother states that they began spinning up a few days ago and has become more frequent and more forceful. Manisha, you were asked to come down to assess the patient. What do you want to do? I come down and start with a focused history that looks at the characteristics of the vomiting, the hydration status of the baby, and then perform a physical exam that includes a review of the patient's vital signs, um, once again, hydration status, and complete abdominal exam. Okay. Mom states that emesis is non-bloody and non-bilious, and it looks like formula that he has been drinking. He continues to have some wet diapers, but not as frequently as normal. He is also somewhat quieter than normal. On exam, vital significant or tachycardia. The baby is sleeping but easily arousable. His anterior fontanelle is depressed. His abdomen is soft, non-distended, and non-tender. What's your differential for the patient, and what are your next steps? Um, with the history of projectile vomiting, I'm most concerned about pyloric stenosis, but also have to think about food allergies, reflux, or another reason this baby might have an upper GI obstruction. But because this patient seems dehydrated, I'd make sure to get an IV placed, <laughs> draw some labs, including a CBC and a BMP, and start a 20 cc per kilo bolus of normal saline. I'd also order an abdominal ultrasound to assess the pylorus. Your labs demonstrate normal CBC. However, your BMP shows a sodium of 132 and a potassium of 2.8. The chloride is 90 and the bicarb is 40. Now your ultrasound shows a 20 millimeter long pylorus with a wall thickness of five millimeters. And importantly, when they're doing the ultrasound, gastric contents do not pass through the pylorus. What's your diagnosis and what are your next steps? So this ultrasound is diagnostic for pyloric stenosis. And I'd love to rush them off to the OR, but they appear to be kind of irregular in terms of their lab. They have that classic hypocholemic, hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis um, with dehydration. 
So after the first bolus of 20 cc's per kilo of normal saline, I'd run the patient on uh, 1.5 maintenance IV fluid with dextrose and normal saline and some potassium chloride. I then rechecked the electrolytes in eight hours to see if they would be safe for the operating room. I'd also make sure to get the patient admitted to the floor. Great. That's a really important part of the workup to make sure the patient's not dehydrated before they go to the operating room. Amanda, what are your goals for the electrolytes and why? So in this patient, speaking of electrolytes, I think another important thing to note is with a bicarb of 40, um, depending on how dehydrated uh, the patient is and also how tachypnic, uh, the child may belong in the ICU. And so I think that that's a decision that you make um, while looking at that child. But with those labs, I would be concerned potentially for the need for an ICU admission temporarily. And then with resuscitation, I would like the chloride to be over 100 and the bicarb less than 30 and a potassium greater than 3.4, but less than 5.2. And these are really important markers of resuscitation prior to anesthesia, which is essential in this scenario with a baby that has been vomiting nonstop for the past few days. In a study out of Children's Mercy, they had presented a protocol for fluid resuscitation. And this was based on initial chloride and bicarb concentrations. And the authors recommended 220 per kilo boluses for patients with chloride less than 97 or a bicarb greater than 33, and three boluses if the chloride was less than 85 or the bicarb was greater than 40. And so I think continuing to resuscitate these patients and rechecking labs and really just waiting for them to settle out before taking them to the OR for pylorus stenosis is really important. Thanks, Amanda. That was a great explanation. Okay, Venetia, back to you. You repeat the electrolytes, and that shows a sodium of 136, potassium of 3.4, a chloride of 101, and a bicarb of 29. What's your plan? It looks like that we resuscitated the baby somewhat, so we can proceed with a laparoscopic pyloromyotomy. So we get the patient to the OR and intubated. We place them supine on the bed, insert an NG tube after intubation. We safely enter the abdomen through the umbilicus and identify the location of two additional ports in the right and left epigastrium. I then identify the pylorus and incise the serosa with electrocautery and bluntly separate the muscle fibers such that the muscle fibers are freely mobile and we see the underlying mucosa is protruding through. I then perform a leak test by insufflating the stomach via the nasogastric tube. If there's no leak, I'd close the patient, wait four hours after anesthesia, and then start the patient on oral feed ad lib. So let's say that both leaflets of your pylorus appear mobile after you've done your biotomy. Unfortunately, you notice a leak of green liquid through the mucosa. Wah, wah. What will you do now? Well, it sounds like uh, I would convert to an open procedure and repair the injury. Then I'd close the mucosal injury with a vicral suture and then close that pylorus muscle over the injury. Then I turn the pylorus 180 degrees and perform my longitudinal pyloromyotomy on the backside. I do another leak test, and once that was good, I close the patient and still plan to allow the patient to eat ad lib four hours after the operation. Okay, great. That's a perfect way to take care of it. This uh, leak, which is uncommon but possible. Um, Amanda, would you have done anything different? We have chosen open operation. Would you have done anything different when you saw that leak? When would you allow the baby to start eating? 
some of the important questions we think about in M&M conferences. So a Cochrane review comparing LAP versus open pyloromyotomies was performed in 2021. And the LAP approach had a slightly increased risk of mucosal perforation, as well as a slightly increased risk of incomplete myotomy when compared to the open approach. That being said, I think surgeons today are more familiar with laparoscopy as it's integrated into our training the first time that we enter the OR. I think I would have still approached this patient laparoscopically and again, converted to an open procedure when I had a mucosal injury. In regards to nutrition, there was a randomized control trial performed at Riley, uh, which had demonstrated that a relaxed POI lib feeding protocol was no different in regards to rates of postoperative vomiting or readmission rates, but did correlate with a decreased length of stay postoperatively compared to a more structured feeding regimen. If our child did not have the mucosal perforation, I would have allowed our child to start eating formula or breast milk four hours after he was extubated and essentially PO ad lib. And with the relaxed feeding protocol, the volumes are not as high. So it's usually 12.5 mils per kilogram initially until they tolerate two feeds. Given the early recognition in the specific scenario of the mucosal injury and the repair, I postoperatively would still do the PO ad lib protocol four hours postoperatively, given that we didn't have leak for a long period of time and it was very early recognized that there was a problem we needed to fix. Okay. Is there potentially another way that we could have fixed this repair? And would it be okay if we wanted to wait for a day and get another GI study before going on feeding? So I think alternatively, you could have fixed the mucosal repair and left your pyloromyotomy where it was um, and then performed almost like a grand patch and put a piece of momentum over that mucosal injury. Because you had closed the mucosal injury but left the myotomy, then the following day I would perform an upper GI and ensure that there was no leak there prior to feeds. Great. This is just an example of two different ways you can fix this problem that unfortunately many of us have seen in our practice uh, dealing with these pyloromyotomy patients. Okay, let's head on to the last case. Now, Manisha, you're called back to the emergency department. At the typical 3 a.m. time, this time for a two-year-old boy who presents with abdominal pain that began at 4 p.m. the afternoon before, his parents state the pain started all of a sudden and he would bend forward to find some relief. What would you like to know about this patient? So I'd once again start with a focused history and physical, focusing on our patient's hydration status, if he's had any episodes of nausea or vomiting, if he has vomited, the characteristics of it, any changes to his bowel movements, including blood in his stool. And then from a physical exam perspective, I'd look at his vitals, hydration status, and a complete abdominal exam. Well, prior to 4 p.m., he had been eating well and staying hydrated. The child has had a few episodes of non-bloody, non-biliosemesis. Then he had one episode of stool that had jelly-like blood. He has tachycardic on exam. He is curled up on the bed with voluntary guarding and has had diffuse abdominal tenderness to palpation. I'd like a bit more history focusing on any state contact if he's had any episodes like this before, and any previous surgical history. Okay. Well, he had a URI over last weekend, but nothing from a GI perspective. He has had a history of ileoatresia as a newborn, which required a bowel resection. And 10 months later, he had an X-lap for surgical bowel obstruction. He has never had these symptoms before, however. At this point, top of my list is intussusception, followed closely by constipation, Meckel's diverticulum, appendicitis, and volvulus. I would start by resuscitating him with 20 cc per kilo of normal saline and start some maintenance IV fluids. 
I'd also send for a CBC and BMP. The labs come back and they're all within normal limits. What's next? I get our, our trusty abdominal ultrasound to further assess this patient. Okay. So they get the ultrasound and it demonstrates a mass that appears like a target with multiple rings of differing echogenicity in the right abdomen. At this point, our patient who doesn't have any peritoneal signs and looks like he has intussusception, I'd ask our radi- radiology colleagues to perform a contrast enema. And if the enema is successful, we'd continue nothing by mouth for four more hours and then PO challenge him. If he does well, he can go home. Okay, let's say that contrast or air enema was unsuccessful. What's next? We can ask them to repeat the enema. Typically, a second enema has up to a 50% success rate and would kind of follow the same algorithm of reassessing the patient after four hours, PO challenging him again. And if he was still unsuccessful, um, I plan to take the patient to the operating room. All right, let's step back a minute. Amanda. What are different ways to reduce an intussusception? So the three main ways to radiologically reduce an intussusception are, number one, fluoroscopy-guided hydrostatic enema, and number two, fluoroscopic-guided pneumatic enema, and number three, an ultrasound-guided hydrostatic enema. All three of these ways are useful and valuable. It really just depends on what resources you have within your hospital and also what your pediatric radiologists are comfortable doing. And all of these have very low risk of perforation. Uh, using ultrasound instead of fluoroscopy does uh, prevent uh, use of uh, uh, radiation. So that is a benefit to using ultrasound guidance. All right. So what if your radiologist is unavailable to help with this? How could you do it? We could um, take the patient to the operating room. In general, just anesthesia alone can help reduce the intussusception if these radiologic enemas don't succeed. But if we weren't able to do radiologic enemas, we could do pneumatic enema under fluoroscopy in the operating room. We could also open the patient and perform a manual reduction. I would first select to perform a diagnostic laparoscopy, see if I could find any intussusceptive bowel, and then reduce it manually and close the patient. Okay, great. Well, let's say your two radiologic hydrostatic reductions were unsuccessful. You take the patient to the operating room. Can you describe the operation and what you might expect to find? So if our patient was unable to be reduced, I would think potentially of a pathological lead point such as a Meckel's diverticulum, a duplication cyst, a polyp, or a new diagnosis lymphoma. Usually we see these in the, the older uh, patient population and, and in children that are not at the toddler age as described in this scenario but not unreasonable to also think about these potentials. In the operating room for this two-year-old, I would attempt a laparoscopic reduction, place three ports, and in the size child, usually five millimeter trocars, and perform the reduction by essentially pushing on the colonic side and pulling the small bowel out of the colon. I would make sure to be very uh, mindful to be gentle with the bowel because you can deserosalize that bowel or even perforate the intestine when it is uh, very friable and has been edematous for a long period of time. And if I can't reduce the bowel, then at this point, I would convert to an open procedure and my umbilical incision, I would make slightly larger and and eviscerate the small bowel to run it essentially and look for any pathological lead points. Depending on if I'm able to reduce this or if I um, feel like I'm not able to safely do so, then I would perform an ileocolic resection with a primary side-to-side uh, anastomosis. And again, if there's any concern for additional bowel 
pathology, I think it's just really important to be sure um, in these scenarios and don't be afraid to open just to get a better look at that bowel. All right. That's a good deal. Sounds like you've been really thinking about this and uh, it makes sense that you and I just did this operation earlier today. And uh, fortunately, our patient had an intussusception that you were able to reduce with a pulsion technique with uh, pulling on the, the small bowel and pushing on the large bowel in order to get it reduced. In that case, we remove the appendix and uh, we'll hopefully send the patient home tomorrow. All right, let's move on. Uh, so let's talk about some of the takeaways from these cases. First, the malrotation case. Bilious emesis is a neonatal emergency and should always lead to an evaluation of malrotation because the risk of metagabalvius can be devastating. Additionally, these patients can look pretty normal despite the bilious emesis until they get really sick. So never let these patients just sit. Next, takeaways from the pyloric stenosis case. If you're the first one seeing the patient, get some labs, get an ultrasound, and start resuscitating the patient with at least one 20 mL per kilo normal saline bolus and then maintenance and a half IV fluids. Once a patient is resuscitated, you can complete the pyloromyotomy in whichever way the operating surgeon is most comfortable with. Finally, let's take away our intussusception case. So long as the patient does not show overt signs of perforation, the patient can undergo contrast or air reduction under imaging. If this solves the patient's problems, the patient should be observed for first for at least a few hours, PO challenged, and then can discharge from the ER. If the patient has recurrent intussusception or presents at an older age, think about what that lead point might be, and you might need to really think about doing surgery in that case. All right, BTK listeners, hopefully this was helpful for you to ace your PEEPS surgery ward. Um, and thanks for a great two years. Remember, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.